episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings, Christina, and greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Woolman, and I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, always looking for optimal health. And today we're going to be looking into a special field of medicine, neurosurgery, the mm. brain, the spinal cord, pretty interesting stuff. Mm. Christina, uh, if people want to get in touch with us or Dr. Jones, how would they do that? Well, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, you could be listening or watching this um, a month from now, tomorrow, or even two years from now. And uh, if you pop it into that comment box, we'll be sure to get your message across to wherever it should go. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, just simply call us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, You're quite welcome. I'm really honored today to have Dr. Jones with us. He's a neurosurgeon and the medical director for the Santa Barbara Neuroscience Institute at Cottage Mm -hmm. Health. He's also the executive medical editor of Neurotransmitter Magazine. And by the way, I love that title for a magazine for neurosciences. (laughs) (laughs) He's also the director of a conference and symposium called Saving the Brain. This year is the ninth annual conference, and we're going to talk about that if we have a little time near the end. So without further ado, I am really privileged to uh, invite Dr. Thomas Jones to speak with us today. Welcome, Tom. Welcome. Thank you (laughs) for having me. Oh, my goodness. It's such a pleasure and our honor to have you with us. It's uh, I'm excited. I have hope. (laughs) <laughs> hopefully i won't destroy that hope <laughs> hope is not a strategy <laughs> so, so uh tom as the medical guide i like to tell our audience how we're going to hopefully go today uh we're going to first talk about you a little bit learn about uh just you and then we're going to find out some of the criteria it takes to become educated and be what you are and who you are then we're going to get into maybe some of the meat of uh i don't know if i should be using the word meat when we're talking about (laughs) Uh, but we're going to be getting into the real details of what you do and uh we'll talk about uh neurosurgery and some of the things that you love and and we'll go from there how's that sound very good all right ask away (laughs) <laughs> Ask away. So the, the first question is, uh, how, when, why did you become a doctor? What made you go into the field of medicine itself? Good question. I, I grew up in a family uh, uh, with a father who was an engineer and a mathematician. Mm. And uh, one would have thought I would have traveled in that direction. But my, my interests were, were all biomedical sciences as a, as a youth. And I was fascinated by the history of medicine and, and what, it, what I read about the science of medicine. Uh, one book in particular by 
a, a microbiologist named Paul de Kroof, um, who is a um, uh, American of Dutch ancestry, uh, who actually helped uh, Sinclair Lewis write Aerosmith for oh. those for those uh, English oh. scholars out there. Wow! Uh, but he wrote a book that was very formative in my uh, decision uh, called Microbe Hunters. And I think it was first oh, written yeah. in, in 1927, but it fell into my hands as a fifth grader and wow. um, a sixth grader. And uh, it was a fascinating read about all the, uh, the revolutionaries of, of medicine at that time, including Pasteur and Koch and uh, uh, Leon Hook, who invented the microscope. Uh, and and about how they uh, discovered what they discovered and how they advanced the the cause of both science and medicine, and it it it, it so it made me want to not only go into the biomedical sciences but uh, more medicine, uh, taking care of patients, uh, using using medical breakthroughs to help patients uh, treat disease, and uh, that led me to college and on to medical school, and uh, we can go into the details, but uh, many years later, uh, a surgeon. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because for me, one of the influences for me going into medicine was a book that my father had in his library. Uh, it, was called, it was a book on anatomy. It was written by Tom Jones. <laughs> so even before I met you, you were influencing my life. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a different. It wasn't the singer. It wasn't me, but it was another one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There, there are probably at least three of you. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now you're you go through medical school, and we know in medical school that there's lots of possibilities, and. In neurosurgery, I mean, it's the most debilitating, the most devastating of injuries or brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. And when people hear about brain tumors, that, that sends chills through everyone. Why does somebody pick neurosurgery as the specialty they want to be in? Well, I, I naturally uh, felt uh, um, some more acute interest in the neurosciences. I don't know why that was. Uh, maybe it's because I like to memorize long lists of words that no one else knew. Uh, in, in, any, in any event, uh, I, I, I felt that uh, of all the things I could uh, concentrate in, the neurosciences at that time were among the most challenging. And, uh, and I had a, men a couple mentors, one a neurologist and one a neurosurgeon, who were fundamentally important in my in developing my interest and encouraging me to stay the course. And so it was early on mentorship in medical school and in the clinical years of medical school that cemented this interest in the neurosciences. And then at that time, in the uh, early 70s, uh, there wasn't a lot that a neurologist could do to help people with neurologic illness. Uh, there was maybe one or at the most two drugs for epilepsy. There was no real treatment for multiple sclerosis. Uh, uh, there was no uh, good treatment for uh, uh, some of the other illnesses I was seeing, like myasthenia. 
and and I began to look around for because I, I guess I have a surgical personality. I I, I want to do things with my hands and use my brain to help people. And and even though neurosurgery at that time was primitive compared to what we have now, I, I was attracted to uh, neurosurgery under the neuroscience umbrella and uh, recognized it was a more rigorous course of training, probably the most rigorous at that time, um, but uh, decided to make that my career. We're going to talk about the training in just a few minutes, but I, I want to ask you the question that... When people come to you, they usually have something pretty serious, and even under many great circumstances, even the outcomes are not always that great, and you continue to do this. What gives you joy in your practice? Well, I, I, we're, we're realists. We can't uh, awake the dead uh, or mm -hmm. cure incurable diseases, although uh, scientists are working on, on those, and what mm -hmm. was incurable in my time is now curable in many situations. But what, what gives me uh, enough energy to get up in the morning face today is that using what skill set I've developed over these years, I, I can, I can uh, help many people understand what we can and cannot do. Uh, I can lead them through the, the forest, so to speak, to... Um, to the best care for their particular problem. And that may or may not have anything to do with surgery. In fact, as I, as I become more mature, um, much of what I deal with now is spinal disease. And uh, in, the, in the United States, at least, uh, there's too much surgery, too many interventions. Um, we've gone way, way beyond the science of surgery into uh, the business of surgery. And uh, so, so I, I try to uh, bring into the discussion the new new scientific theories of pain per, per se, and and the new non-surgical treatments for pain. Uh, so everything I do is not surgery. It's, in fact, probably the fundamentally most important thing I do is is what I what I do in the half hour to an hour I spend with the patients over in the office deciding whether they're surgical candidates and uh, whether they should venture into the operating room. <clears throat> you know, I uh, just to be transparent and totally open, uh, back in the 90s, I had uh, herniated a disc in my neck, and I had severe pain down my arm, and then I was losing motor and muscle function. I went to see Dr. Jones. He made the perfect diagnosis. Uh, he operated on me. And I was cured and had no problem since. A few years later, uh, I herniated a disc in my lower back. Same issues. Dr. Jones made the diagnosis, operated, and everything has been perfect. And the, th and the third time I went to see Dr. Jones, uh, I had fractured my back in multiple places. And at that time, he made the decision not to operate and thought that would be the best procedure for me. And I would say that in all three cases, made the right diagnosis uh, and made the right choices, and I've been uh, forever grateful. So this is an opportunity for me to say thank you, and now it'll be in virtual world, so it'll be forever that <laughs> <laughs> I'll be thanking you. Um, let's talk about your training. Uh, what does it take to be a neurosurgeon? Like anything... Um, uh, 
doing well a lot of effort a lot of time so that the training first of all one has to get complete four years of medical school and and training programs in neurosurgery are hard to get into still uh, that means you have to excel in medical school uh, and be uh, generally at the top of your class to uh, secure a residency, particularly one of the coveted residencies. Uh, so in residency, one learns to be a surgeon. Uh, usually in my day, you started out with an internship in general uh, surgery, and now it's more of a rotating uh, capacity where you start out with some general surgery experience to learn how to tie knots and do simple surgery, and then you quickly transitioned into the neurosurgical realm of training, which is anywhere from six to seven years long. Uh, so that's uh, after medical school, which is four years. It may take seven years, sometimes more, to complete one's neurosurgery training. Uh, many neurosurgeons end up getting PhDs along the way, so that may add to the time. Basically, when you finish neurosurgery, you're you're middle aged. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're almost ready to retire. I, I can say this because I have a daughter who just completed her chief residency in neurosurgery, and wow. and uh, and uh, the same place where I trained, and uh, she's uh, you know spent many years doing it. So uh, it's a it's a life commitment. Uh, after so, then after you finish your neurosurgery training, you in the modern era you may or may not do a fellowship. Let's say you want to become a spine surgeon and just do that as a neurosurgeon. In most cases now, uh, there there's a one or two year spine fellowship. Uh, in if you want to become a person committed to certain types of brain surgery, there may be a one uh, occasionally two year uh, fellowship in that. Um, if you want to do uh, fu- what's called functional neurosurgery, which in- involves treating epilepsy and Parkinson's disease, uh, th- there-, there may be a year or more fellowship in that. So this can get strung on until you're 35, 36 years old, and you haven't yet earned a living. Uh, although they do pay residents better now than they used to pay us, and they don't work them as hard. But... Uh, that said, they're still they're still working very hard, and even on their off hours, they're studying. Uh, I was married during medical school, and I was married during residency. Uh, same wife, um, and uh, that takes a huge commitment on the part of the wife. Uh, I can tell you that she worked harder than I did often. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, if one is fortunate enough to get through this. Uh, process to come out the other end and take your oral boards so that, uh, that you know enough to practice neurosurgery. Then you take written boards, uh, not necessarily in that order. Uh, and now there's a continuing education demand that every two to four years you have to re-review your cases, uh, discuss them with doctors to review the outcomes as best they can, uh, take additional written testing to maintain your board certification. So it's an ongoing lifetime process uh, of, of learning and proving that you're still competent. 
I'm exhausted. You might have time for one surgery <laughs> after all of this, right? <laughs> well, and then in the modern era of neurosurgery, usually in my era, I finished neuro, I finished my training and I did everything. I did. <laughs> I operated on aneurysms, brain tumors, what are called AV malformations, spinal problems, everything. But now there's sub specialization. So most neurosurgeons now treat part of the nervous system uh, they're they're either a brain tumor surgeon or they're a spine surgeon or they're a functional surgeon uh, they're a peripheral nerve surgeon uh, there are all these sub sub specialties areas now and it's, it's changed considerably because the thing is there's too much happening in all these areas for one person to keep up with uh, and so to to, be, to maintain even the of keeping up in your specialty, you need to subspecialize. Yeah, that seems to be the way for everything now. Now, I, I want to be uh, c- careful and appropriate. Uh, you mentioned one daughter who just graduated uh, from neurosurgery. Just to be fair, do you want to mention any of your other family and things they've done or just sure. equal well, time I, here? I'm still married after all these years, uh, over 45 years. Beautiful. Uh, Bravo. Uh, I have four uh, daughters, um, three of them have MBAs, and then the one has an MD, and a, she has a public health degree and a master's in sort of medical journalism, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first, my first daughter uh, graduated from Stanford and started a company with four other people and was a successful entrepreneur early on, and was on the cover of Forbes four times and has done well. She's retired. I'm still working. <laughs> so, <laughs> something's wrong here. <laughs> My second born uh, is a mother of three and works full time at Medtronic, which is a large uh, medical company. She uh, runs the vascular stent division on, uh, and lives in Northern California. Um, my third born is the neurosurgeon, and my fourth born is a musician who graduated from Stanford with a degree in music composition and, and now went to business school and works at Facebook. So mm-hmm. I, I think they've, they've all done well, and uh, that's because her mother is more than mine. I was, in those days, working too hard and trying to be a, a role model and trying to be present when I could, but she did, a, did the heavy lifting. Well, strong work on her part and uh, many blessings to your family contributing to our planet. Um, yes. You were, you were working on the brain for a long time, as you said. You've gone to the spinal cord a little more now. Do you have a view of consciousness, an understanding of it, having been inside the brain where many of us have not been? Yeah. Well... I'm no expert, but from my reading, I would say that that's the holy, one of the holy grails of neuroscience. What is consciousness? What defines it? And it seems that that uh, work is is uh, accumulating that suggests that it's not any one part of the brain that controls consciousness. It's the whole brain working in concert. Uh, and that's what distinguishes a conscious brain from an unconscious brain. Um, 
it's a it's akin to the analogy of of um, the ant world, where you if you look at uh, leaf cutter ants, let's say uh, each each ant in the ant colony is pretty simplistic. It can cut the leaf one way, or can cut the leaf the other way. It can drag dead bodies to a certain uh, part of the ant uh, colony to dispose of them. It can bring in food. But each ant is pretty simplistic in their functioning, akin to individual neurons. But if you put the whole ant colony together, they're creating some amazingly complex um, tasks. And, and uh, so it, it, it seems that the 800 million to 1 billion neurons, each with 10,000 connections, um, it, 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 and, and it's called a connectome, uh, that it's the connectome working actively and in unison that defines consciousness. Mm. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think, so, you know, you know, if you shut down the the subcortical and cortical brain, then uh, you can you can start to say, well, someone looks unconscious in terms of their EEG and their response to external stimulus. You can't prove that they're not on some level conscious. And this whole thing surfaces in the patients with persistent vegetative state. Uh, we used to think patients who were not brain dead but had no external signs of responding to the environment were uh, unconscious. But now studies show that certain tests suggest that they hear voices and they can register them in certain parts of their brain. So it, it disturbs the whole understanding of what is conscious and what is not. Um, so we have a way to go to define exactly what is consciousness, but at this point in time, it seems to me that the evidence points points to uh, connectivity as being the underpinning of consciousness. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I want to start transitioning into the things that you do, and one of the important things, I think, is... Uh, dealing with pain, uh, chronic pain, acute pain, and especially back pain seems to be uh, something in this country and around the world that takes people out a lot. Uh, there's a lot of expenses put into it. And then there's the treatments for it. And, and slowly we've been treating people with more and more pain medications, et cetera. And now we've gotten to a point where we're giving so many opioids that the medical profession is having to give courses on opioids. Uh, people are dying on opioid therapy. Uh, there's a lot of problems with pain now. How do you look at pain and what's your process in terms of pain and pain management? So first I would like to separate out acute from chronic pain because I think they're different animals. Um, acute pain follows the usual uh, processes that we learn about in neurophysiology, even in high school, where the A fibers or C fibers are excited in the periphery and connect to the spinothalamic tracts that connect to the, the thalamus and then go to the parietal cortex and register consciousness of pain. Uh, and the, the things that cause acute pain are usually easily identifiable, like a heart attack, uh, a trauma, like a fracture, uh, or a large ruptured disc with a patient who has a neurologic deficit. And they, they are easily identifiable and 
and expeditiously treatable. And those are the patients that may need a short course of opioids, as you put that, um, as a as a bridge to getting them definitive treatment. Uh, the problem occurs when you when doctors have through misunderstanding and miseducation, treated chronic pain as if it's just acute pain that's lasting longer. And that's where we get into trouble. If you define chronic pain as pain that lasts beyond the time of normal tissue healing, which is generally about three months, we can all uniformly agree it should be uh, six months. If someone's still having daily pain, that's chronic pain. Uh, chronic pain, it turns out, has very little to do and very little correlation with uh, tissue damage. And it has more to do with uh, the brain mishandling the information, uh, either because of some genetic predisposition to pain or some early life predisposition to pain or uh, psychosocial issues. Uh, it's the chronic pain is more associated with brain phenomenon than peripheral phenomenon. Now there are obviously exceptions, and that is uh, patients with cancer pain, patients with uh, large trauma to peripheral structures and nerves that result in chronic pain. So there, but the majority of people with chronic pain, uh, we can't in the medical profession, no matter how many times we scan them, decide where it's coming from and why them. And more and more studies are showing it. It's the brain that distinguishes patients uh, who have chronic pain uh, from one another, not the spine and not the, the peripheral scans. Uh, so complex problems still being worked out, uh, but the treatments for chronic pain are better non-opioid, non-benzodiazepine, because both these drugs are habit-forming and alter the brain chemistry in a negative way and perpetuate more pain. Uh, so we try to treat the patient's psychological milieu. We try to identify risk factors in their past or in genetics. Uh, we try to use non-habit-forming drugs. Well, this is fascinating, actually, because I think it's important uh, for physicians. Uh, we're learning this part of the process. We're being... Uh, you know, uh, educated by our boards and and telling us to take courses and things. But I think it's also important for patients to come in and understand that that could be an outcome if they go down that path. So uh, what do you suggest to patients to in speaking with their doctors about this process? Uh, the worst yeah. place is the, is, is the Internet. Mm. Uh, uh, there is so much misinformation on the Internet uh, that it's more dangerous than helpful. If you go to sites that are vetted, uh, and I don't want to give anyone a PR, but, uh, you know, mayoclinic.com or .org, uh, WebMD, uh, some reputable sites that have been screened and vetted, uh, maybe, but uh, there's so much on the web that's just advertisement and trying to lure people into off the treatments that I would generally disregard the web, um, except for those exceptions that I mentioned. Uh, I, I think you want to find a doctor that doesn't who spends time with you. You want to you want a doctor who actually 
which is a hard thing to find nowadays because everyone's been rewarded for practicing conveyor belt medicine. You not only don't have a doctor frequently, you have a nurse practitioner, and they're all busy, and they're all too busy, and they spend very little time, and they, they prescribe too many medications as an alternative to talking to you, examining you. And so if you, if you can't find someone to talk to you and examine you, then you're probably in the wrong office, in my view. Um, and then, you know, to appreciate the patient with chronic pain, you have to understand the individual from birth to the time you're seeing them. You have to know all the forces that are driving them and their pain, their relationships at work, their relationships at home, uh, what, what uh, secondary gain maybe they be, may be experiencing. Like we all know from in medicine that patients with work comp injuries and personal injury claims do a lot less well predictably than those without those and that doesn't mean that that any one patient is is uh, fabricating their illness. It means that secondary gain issues are important, uh, fundamentally important in how pain is ranked and how people do with interventions. Um, so we we have to put all these things in perspective before treating a patient, and we have to rely less on powerful medications and more on personal relationships and interviewing and the health healthy lifestyles. Uh, if you're 50 pounds overweight and you have chronic pain, you need to commit yourself to a healthy lifestyle. That means eating correctly, beginning the laborious process of aerobic uh, conditioning, reconditioning, uh, of core strengthening. Nothing replaces that. You have to make a personal commitment. You can't treat that with a medicine and do the same thing. I'm... I'm uh, very strong on mind-body medicine, and I, I wasn't before. When I first came out of training, I, I not only thought I knew everything about everything, but I <laughs> but but I thought, but I think I thought that everything could be treated with surgery on some level, and uh, now I know that's the wrong approach. Uh, we have to unleash the powers of the body, which most non-MD physicians, non-MD practitioners have known for a long time, but the, 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 the powers of the mind and the body far exceed what we can do often, not always, with medicines and surgery. And uh, they may be, you know, mind-body medicine is a very powerful and important part of treating patients with chronic pain issues. Boy, that was that was just brilliant. I'm glad mm-hmm. you went through all of this, and and so now you've you've uh, inspired me to confess uh, that after all of the surgeries you did on me and the non-surgeries you did on me, which I have already said I'm grateful for and were the main part of my healing, I went on, and I might have mentioned this to you at some points, but I went on as part of my healing to do a lot of mind-body work. I did acupuncture, I did meditation, I worked with homeopaths and shamans and energy workers taking Chinese herbs and a number of things. And all of these things came together, starting with your diagnosis and surgery, and then doing all of this for healing. And I, at this point, having gone through all those things, am on no pain medications at this point. So I really appreciate what you just said about all of that. And I think uh, as people listen to this, they will learn a lot from that. So thank you. I want to move on and talk a little bit about a few other topics in um, neurosurgery. Uh, One of them is stroke. Uh, 
Uh, every year, more than in America, we have close to 800,000 people in the United States having a stroke, and it kills maybe around 130,000 people per year. Uh, but one of the good things is strokes have now fallen to the number five cause of death. I believe they were the number three a few years ago. And that's because of many of the things that are being done right now. Public awareness, where we talk about fast, uh, you know, the mnemonic uh, F for face, if people uh, can't smile or move their face in the right way, or arm, uh, moving their arm, and then speech, S, and then T is time to call 911. So if you have a patient like that. So public awareness. They're also doing things in other countries now where they have stroke, u- stroke mobile units where uh, like an ambulance will have a CT scanner for the head. They'll have a neurologist on the ambulance and they'll start doing stroke treatments within minutes. Uh, just like we learned about the heart, you know, you know, and everybody learned CPR. There's a lot to be done about stroke. What's new uh, in stroke uh, surgery that, and treatment that is taking us down to number five? and hopefully six and seven in the future. In the last year, Dave, some people are about six stroke trials uh, of active intervention uh, that with a p-value of less than 0.05 show that, which means scientifically proven in those particular studies, uh, that, that they were able to, to improve the outcome with active intervention. Uh, interventions can be just simply uh, getting people to the hospital quicker, getting people to the scanner quicker, and intervening more quickly. But the interventions I'm talking about are with specially trained doctors. Usually uh, a minority of neurosurgeons are doing these, but in our community, uh, we have a neurosurgeon primarily involved in endovascular stroke care, that is, navigating catheters up into the neck vessels or the brain vessels and taking out blood clots, lysing blood clots with powerful chemicals called, one of which is called TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, to actually disrupt clots that are forming. Um, and and this, this active and quick intervention has now been shown to save lives, save people from large strokes, and, and, uh, and I, I think is exciting news for those uh, doctors who all along felt that active intervention was better than what we had before. Uh, obviously, treating stroke risk factors is probably will make the biggest change. Uh, most people who have stroke have been have risk factors that were never properly attended to, and those mm-hmm. include hyper, hypertension uh, primarily and atherosclerotic risk factors, uh, as well as diabetes, which is a, a risk factor for all vascular disease. Um, so treating aggressively uh, stroke risk factors, and they're also similar heart attack risk factors, will dramatically decrease the population at risk. But if you have a stroke, the quicker you can get to a stroke center like ours, uh, and and that has access to endovascular therapies, uh, the better you're going to do. So there is hope for us here. <clears throat> and there's even stem cell on the horizon. Uh, there there's some exciting work uh, of injecting adult stem cells 
at the time of the of the stroke and showing some early indications that those patients may turn out with a better uh, functional result than those without the treatment. That's on the horizon, but it's not uh, available most places, obviously. It's un- under research protocol now. There's a lot of great research in the neurosciences right now. I think that's the final frontier, don't you? Certainly one of them. I, I think the other is cancer treatment, mm-hmm. uh, which we share in neurosurgery, but uh, cancer treatment uh, is really going through major uh, changes with the ta- tailored medications and immunotherapy. Right. And, and uh, those treatments are also available for brain tumors. They're not ready for prime time, probably. Uh, there's some exciting work that you've probably seen on 60 Minutes and other shows uh, about immunotherapy for brain tumors, but uh, it's still under investigation, I would say. The, the chemotherapy options for malignant brain tumors have actually extended the lives of people in most trials now. Uh, people are living longer and better. Uh, certainly not a cure yet for most people. Uh, for malignant brain tumors, which are altogether too common. Uh, but we've, we've come a long way. Um, when I first started, the average patient with a malignant brain tumor was going to be dead in three to six months, and that's no longer the case. And uh, we also have better surgical procedures. And in, at, at our facility in Santa Barbara, we have the only three Tesla intraoperative MRI scan on the West Coast. And what that allows our brain tumor surgeons to do is, in certain types of brain tumors, uh, make sure that under the first operation, they've gotten all visible tumor out. Mm. Uh, in, in, in the past, there was a high rate of residual tumor on post-operative scans. And, and then you have to face the the decision, well, do you take the patient back to the operating room or you just do the best you can with the residual tumor? It's now been shown pretty effectively in multiple studies that the least, the less tumor you have, and we're talking uh, usually malignant brain tumors, the less tumor you have on your post-operative scan, the longer you live and the better you do in most situations. Uh, so using intraoperative MRI scan, using the latest and greatest computerized tracking uh, tools and, and surgical skill sets with microscopes, uh, the, the better patients are doing and the longer they're, li- they're living. Love that. I want to talk about a few more areas of an innovation. One is Parkinson's. Anything going on there? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think uh, 10 years ago, all discussion of Parkinson's other than uh, Cinemet, which is levodopa, um, chemical treatment of uh, by pill form of Parkinson's disease was brain lesioning. That is destroying parts of the brain to uh, to hope to decrease tremor or improve rigidity. Uh, but now, in the last five years, it's been shown that brain deep brain implants with stimulation is a better way to go. So you're not destroying tissue, but you're actually activating neural circuitry to turn on or off uh, parts of the brain that diminish tremor amplitude or improve stiffness. You're not curing Parkinson's disease, but you're improving the manifestations in many patients 
And uh, these are relatively small, low-risk procedures when done by uh, subspecialists in the field. When you talked earlier about stem cells, uh, I want to talk about that and spinal cord injuries. You know, that, that seems to be most one of the complex areas and certainly difficult for people to handle. Is there a future where we're going to see uh, people that are quadriplegic, paralyzed, uh, come out of that? I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's in the future, but there, there are certainly many uh, research trials now ongoing with implanting stem cells in the spinal cord to try to improve the outcome from spinal cord injuries. Uh, the results aren't uh, aren't a done deal. It's not it's not the procedure of choice at this time. Uh, but I think it's uh, it's exciting for the not too distant future. Uh, another major area of interest has been computer brain interfaces so that mm. uh, you can lay strips um, of electrodes on the brain and you can bypass the paralyzed part of the spinal cord and activate leg nerves or arm nerves and have them function um, through the computer inter- interface. Um, so that's very exciting. Uh, basically, the you know the peripheral nerves are still alive; they just aren't getting the message from the brain. But if you can bypass the obstruction in the spinal cord where the scar is, uh, then you you can regain function, and that's an exciting uh, technology that's taking off in many medical centers. Again, not ready for prime time, so to speak, and it's very expensive, but it's exciting. Uh, Exoskeletons is another approach where you take someone who's quadriplegic, let's say, and fit them with a, a, a frame that uh, does the walking for them, so to speak. Some, some of these are computer interfaced to mm-hmm. the patient's brain um, and uh, supports the patient and allows them to get up and feel like they're walking. So there, there, there's a lot of progress, um, but it's not, we're, we're not quite there yet. So when somebody hears about, you know, someone gets a spinal injury and they hear that they're doing stem cell transplants in Mexico or other parts of the world, uh, you know, and they want to go there, your thoughts for them? I would argue against it in most situations. Uh, these, these places do nothing except for hard cash. So they're profit centers. Uh, okay. You have to understand that a stem cell is a what's called a pluripotential cell. So, uh, for instance, if you want to regenerate someone's disc and you inject uh, stem cells into the disc, hoping that they'll turn into uh, cartilage chondrocytes, uh, what's to say that one of them out of 100 that you've put in there won't turn into a chondrocarcinoma or sarcoma, which is a malignant tumor? Uh, you're playing with very dangerous technology, and unless it's been vetted in animal models and then in early uh, human models, and uh, I, I wouldn't trust the safety, short-term, long-term, or the efficacy. So our uh, Segovia, our producer, uh, is very interested in science fiction. Uh, is there going to be a future in brain transplants? Well, you know, there's a patient <laughs> that, that an Italian neurosurgeon 
is all ready to do a brain transplant on. Uh, he has a he's a, a, a Russian man who has a congenital disease that's rendered his arms and legs useless, mm. and he feels that he's willing to be the first brain transplant patient. Uh, so that they plan, if they can ever get this pulled off, to have several teams of surgeons uh, using a, a, a brain-dead donor, um, or let's say not a brain-dead, but a, car- cardiac, a dead donor with a living brain. Um, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, uh, it's, it's the other way around. So you would use the, the man with no bodies, uh, no functioning body parts brain, this man from Russia, and you would transplant that into a brain dead uh, person. Uh, you would. They plan to uh, uh, cool the the donor brain down uh, to decrease metabolism, and then harvest the dead brain, and then sew the the uh, real brain back into the major arteries and veins of the donor body. And uh, they plan to cleave the spinal cord with a special molecular uh, nano knife and they claim to have special proprietary technology that will maybe allow growth of neurons across this cleft i I think there's a this is science fiction uh but it's (laughs) science fiction that may become a reality next year um this this surgery is going to take 30 plus hours and there's obviously more likelihood of failure than success but um, this man's willing to go through that attempt. Mm. The problem all along has been, well, if you're if you're cutting the spinal cord at the upper cervical spine, base of the brain, uh, we don't yet have any proven technology that will uh, allow the brain stem uh, and all those neural circuits to grow into the spinal cord, and uh, so you're tra- treating. Um, you're, you're probably defeating yourself unless you have such technology because you're not going to have a body that works. Um, you may have a, a brain in a bottle, so to speak, but that person uh, will likely not be able to communicate to the outside world. Steve Martin was able to do it in The Man with Two Brains. <laughs> I think at least a neurosurgeon with a little more training could do it. <laughs> Well, there are always people on the frontier, and this uh, Italian neurosurgeon and this Russian patient may uh, be the first to try it. Mm. It's amazing. Christina, any thoughts? Oh, too many. (laughs) I do have hope, (laughs) maybe in the future. (laughs) Wow. That kind of blows me away that uh, they're actually going to... Try something like that. And um, I do have a question, which is um, from the days that you graduated and became a surgeon till today, where you are now faced with all this technology, how does that feel as a doctor? Well, it feels great on one hand. On the other hand, uh, uh, we have to learn how and when to use this technologies you know we've gone from a from an econ- from a medical economy of of spending 500 billion a year to 3 trillion in a very short period of time 
and and in large part that increase in the cost of medical care in this country, the amount that's uh, that's being spent on medical care is because of use of technology, expensive drugs, MRI scans, um, and and we've we've sort of put the cart before the horse. We've learned how to use the technology before the science showed us we should be using the technology. Uh, so yes, it's exciting times, but we can't keep going on this trajectory because no country, um, particularly one that's not that's only growing at one or two percent a year, uh, is going to be able to afford this. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to pick and choose, just as every other country in the world has to date. Uh, whether that's through a single payer system that limits our access, uh, maybe, uh, but. Um, we have to become much better at limiting, for instance, does does everyone with an acute episode of low back pain that can be quite severe need an MRI scan? Mm-hmm. And it turns out most people in this country get them, but most people do not need them. And so right away, that's maybe $100 million, $200 million, maybe more mm-hmm. a year spent needlessly on MRI scans that not only lead to overcare, but poor care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a perfect example of of exploding technology being used incorrectly and leading to more expensive medical care mm. without without any better outcomes. In fact, there are plenty of papers now that show the outcomes in such patients who get early MRI scans is actually worse. Oh, that's interesting. Because they're being overtreated, and they end up having complications of overtreatment. Mm. Yeah. I was just at a conference where they were talking about uh, in socialized uh, countries where somebody has disc disease, and, and by the time they come to the point a year later when they're scheduled for the surgery, it's been it's resolved itself. Exactly. Where, mm. Yeah. Uh, well, that's one of the that's one of the uh, probably fundamental hopes of Blue Cross and Blue Shield in terms of making it harder for patients to get MRI scans and. They have little treatment algorithms now that are fine in the in the in the general aspects of care, but they're not they're they are impediments to what we do if we feel someone needs an earlier MRI and it conflicts with the algorithm that the insurance company has. It's um, it can be a lot of nasty letters back and forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tom, you're you're putting on a program. This is the ninth annual Saving the Brain. And it comes on, I think, Friday, November 4th, 2016. Is that something uh, people want to be interested in if you're other than a neuroscientist? Well, ours is pretty lowbrow, or it has become so. We, we try to appeal more to the, the um, not to necessarily the patients uh, out there, but to uh, caregivers, whether they be physical therapists, paramedics, uh, family docs. Um, certainly we have some neurosurgeons and neurologists attending a lot of therapists and, and, uh, affiliated healthcare workers. Uh, in, in the beginning, we, we had a lot of people, a lot of speakers coming from as far away as Stockholm talking about arcane subjects of science having to do with neuroscience. But we, we've tried to change the program over the years to be more applicable to the, to the general care uh, physician and nurse um, and ER physician, let's say, and mm-hmm. not as much not as much to the neuroscientist or or the neurosurgeon. And how um, would someone find out about that? 
there you can uh, go on Cottage Health website uh, under departments, click on neuroscience, and uh, there's uh, an email and access phone number uh, to find out about the particulars. Thomas, we're coming to the end of the show, and we always ask our guest for a health tip. Do you have something for us? Um, I guess my health tip is, is uh, you know, it's not new. It's uh, everything in moderation, and uh, be, be uh, a skeptic. You know, for physicians and nurses and, and patients, be skeptical of what you're being told. Question it. Uh, try to frame it in the scientific method. Um, is there? What's the proof that what you're being told is true, and what's the proof that it is not true? What are the controversies? Um, I think it, if there's one thing I would tell uh, young physicians, they, they, they need to understand that the, you know, just like Eisenhower described the, the military-industrial complex, uh, I would describe the medical-industrial complex as being equally insidious, perhaps more. Uh, the, the drug companies have billions of dollars at stake, and they're driving a lot of the pseudoscience. They're the ones behind the opiate epidemic, in my view. They're one of the major culprits behind the opiate epidemic. Uh, they were they were creating surrogates called pain management experts who told all of the physicians that it was good to give opiates for pain, and we weren't giving enough, and it was harmless in the vast majority of patients. And that was all the wrong thing. And if we questioned it and used science, we could have seen through that uh, in the beginning and not have this epidemic we're having. So there are a lot of new treatments. Uh, some are, you know, the, the vogue of the month. You know, should we be injecting people with uh, platelet-rich plasma? Uh, everyone under the sun is getting injected into their joints, into their back. There's very, very limited science to drive this. And you've got to understand that placebo reactions are commonplace, and they're real. They can be reversed by Narcan, which is a drug that reverses opiates, mm. so that if you have an injection in your back and you get better, you can't assume that it's because the active agent in, in that injection was the reason why you're better. In fact, a recent double-blinded, prospective, randomized, controlled trial published in the New England Journal on treating lumbar stenosis with injections showed that both the control and the treatment group did equally as well. So, you know, question the results, look for the scientific method, and uh, don't fall prey to the treatment of, of, the, of the day or the month, particularly when it's uh, expensive and it's maybe not covered by insurance. Boy, that was a great health tip. Well, excellent. <laughs> really, really. Yeah, I have to take a deep breath on that one. Tom, is there any, was there anything that you, uh, in preparing for this uh, interview, wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? I think we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I think uh, you've asked good questions, and I tried to answer them. And uh, there's not a whole lot else that I would say, except uh, uh, I think um, sometimes less treatment is, is better. And uh, and I, I again would 
would say the the mind body part of medicine has been neglected and and uh, that's extremely important uh, we all carry with us baggage in our brain that we're not privy to uh, it's not in the, in the conscious part of our brain and it's driving a lot of these ailments uh, and being overlooked and mistreated so that would be a central theme mm. and that's strange coming from a neurosurgeon i realize I I was just thinking that it's, it, it makes the most sense coming from a neurosurgeon, except <laughs> you're right. I would never expect those kind of things, and I'm so happy that you're talking like that. I'm very grateful. Well, I, I, I remember uh, uh, one of my daughter's classmates in medical school told me once that he was thinking about either going into neurosurgery or psychiatry, and he decided, <laughs> on, he decided on neurosurgery because he said psychiatry was much too invasive. that's fabulous tom thank you very much our special guest uh thomas jones uh we're very happy that you shared your wisdom and experience with us i want to thank my teachers and and my healers to take me on my journey uh, including dr jones in this particular case i look forward to getting together again on magical medical tour with christina and segovia and the rest of yoga hub and i want to say to everyone as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy i wish you all optimal health <laughs> thank you so much dr jones for honoring us this was well, thank a, you. A truly uh, really eye-opening your opening experience. Good. Mind opening. Mind opening. Yeah. Well, all, take I care. Know, all I know is I have hope, so that's great. Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Glenn Woman, for another great show. And to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. And you can also follow him on Facebook at The Medical Guide. If you would like to get hold of Dr. Thomas Jones, simply leave us a comment or question here on the site or give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK and we will be sure to get hold of him and pass on the message. Thank you so much for joining us and until next time, namaste. Namaste. 